Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Outward Silverton. This is week six, and we are excited to have you. Thank you for being here. This Friday, or this last Friday, we had a core meeting for people that wanted to be a part of the church, want to be a part of the, the inner core of our, uh, of our little community here. And we had about 50 people here at the barn. Uh, it was awesome. We had a blast. We had a barbecue and just, just had a good time and talked about details of, of the church, a little bit about who we are and where we're going and what we're doing. And I wanted to share a little bit with you. I, I don't want to share the whole thing, but um, it not take too long. But there's a, a style that we have at Outward Silverton, okay? And it can be described in three words. We're passionate, we're disruptive, and we're crafted, okay? And I just want, for those of you who weren't here for the core meeting, let me just explain just for a minute what these things are. We are passionate about the gospel. We want to preach it like, like we believe it, you know what I mean? Like we want to get excited about the gospel because this right here has the power to change lives, so we're passionate. We want to sing passionately. We want to worship passionately. We want to preach passionately. We don't want to be like professors preaching through a textbook here. We, we want to be excited about it. So that's passionate. And we want to be disruptive at Outward. We, we want to, for example, we want to have church not in a stuffy church building, but maybe in an awesome barn out in the country. This is an example of us being disruptive. We don't want to do things the normal way. We want to we want to catch people a little off guard. Like church doesn't have to be the way that maybe our parents did it or maybe our parents' parents did it. We want to do things a little bit disruptive. We're not going to change the message. The message will always be the Bible. Okay? This is our rudder. Uh, this this doesn't change ever, but the method, the style that we're doing things can change a little bit. Like the, the building and the location that we're in. And the last thing is we're crafted. We, we want to craft church like an incredible craft beer. Okay? Like someone took the time and the effort and the energy to craft an incredible microbrew, an incredible IPA. We want to craft everything from the, from the parking lot to the pulpit. Okay? We, we want this experience to be excellent. Not perfect. I mean, we're not trying to, trying to be over the top here, but we want it to be excellent. We want the music to be excellent. We want you, the experience that people have here to be a wonderful experience so that they can come, they can enjoy things, and if they're offended by something, let them be offended by the gospel, not the experience that they have here. We want to be crafted. Even our donuts are crafted. Uh, gear up. Uh, Dan, Checker, and, and Whitney are making donuts for us every morning, if you can believe that or not. They're fresh. Our coffee uh, from Eric Dahl, Silver Falls Coffee, that's crafted. This is the kind of style that we have. Passionate, disruptive, and crafted. Okay? I don't think I mentioned, I'm Tim Porter, by the way. That, that's who I am. I should have introduced myself, but my name's Tim Porter. We're going to continue to walk through Galatians. We're going to do that again today. That's where we started Six weeks ago, that's what we're going to continue. Um, Stephanie read the passage for us, so I won't, I won't reread at least the first verse for you. But let me just highlight one, one aspect of that that she read. Let's see if I can keep my notes in place. She read that we are justified through faith. We are justified through faith and not by works. Brandon last week preached for us, and he, he touched on this, but let me just uh, reiterate uh, what he said. Justification by faith 
is important. That means it's like a legal term. We are, we are justified not through works, but by faith in Christ. We are not condemned. That's the opposite of being justified. We are not condemned. When God sees us, when we have faith in his son, God sees, sees us as clean and sees us as righteous. Our sins have been forgiven and we've received the righteousness of Christ. Another way that the Bible says it sometimes is our debts have been paid and we've received an inheritance from God through faith, not by works. Okay, and that's, that's what Galatians is all about. It's, it's, it's trying to make sure the church of Galatia knows uh, faith is through, excuse me, um, justification is through faith and not through works of the law. When you try to work for your salvation, you're in danger of being plagued by moralism. And that's what I want to talk about today is moralism. My life, my past has been plagued by moralism. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that right now. I mean, even today, I'm continually plagued by moralism. And I'll get into that in just a second uh, about, about my personal experience. But let me define moralism for you in case you're not, you're not tracking. Moralism is the idea that our love and acceptance and approval from God is dependent on our moral performance. That our relationship with God is dependent on our good deeds and our value and our self-worth is about stopping doing the bad things and starting to do the good things. That's garbage, just to be clear. Moralism is, is uh, behavioral focused. It looks at the behavior of our lives and it doesn't go any deeper. Okay? It doesn't understand why we have bad behavior. It just says, you've got bad behavior, you need better behavior. So get, let me give you an example. Moralism would say your problem is anger, maybe pride, and maybe greed. And moralism says the solution to anger, pride, and greed is, for anger, it's peace. You must have peace. And if you're prideful, well, you must be humble. And if you're greedy, well, you need to be generous. It diagnoses sin as just a character flaw and bad living. This is what this, this guy, Travis Gentry, wrote that I read this, uh, this week. Moralism diagnoses sin as a character flaw and bad living, and it prescribes better behavior and better living as the solution. Once again... That is garbage. You need to go deeper. We need to go deeper than what moralism has to offer. On the path to moralism, when you're plagued by moralism, there's, there's two ditches on either side of this path. On one side, and this is what I've experienced, when, when, you're, when you're focused on your moral performance, you can wreck on one side of, of this path by feeling like, ah, I don't measure up. My performance is terrible. I have a terrible score when it comes to doing good things. I think of my college years. They were rough, okay? I was, I was trying to party as much as possible, trying to drink as much as possible, and then I got the 24, 25 years old, and I was just devastated. Like, there's nothing that I have to show for these previous, whatever, seven or eight years in my life. I was condemned by my moral performance. I was crushed by it. Uh, the guilt was just more than I could bear. 
That's one, that's one ditch you can fall into with moralism. But fortunately, I found Jesus in that ditch, so it wasn't all that bad. But that's, that's one way we can fall into it. So I found Jesus, and then I got, got out of that ditch. Jesus was, was amazing. I was able to lay the guilt and the condemnation at his feet, and then, and then off I go in my Christian faith. Now I'm in the other ditch. <laughs> the other ditch is when you look at your moral performance... And you start to feel pretty good about yourself. You say, hey, wait a second. I'm not drinking as much as possible on a regular basis. I'm not engaged in debauchery or whatever, you know, all the the bad things. My life actually looks pretty good. Look, I'm part of a church plan. God should be happy with me. God should approve of me. God should love me because of how wonderful I am. And that's... You're in the ditch. I was in the ditch. I am in the ditch regularly. Both of these things, whether we're condemned by our moral performance or whether we don't think we're condemned by our performance, these are both missing the mark. It's a, this is an example of being plagued by moralism. To the degree that you find yourself in either of these ditches, to the degree that you find yourself in these ditches means that moralism has too much power over your life. And that is what Paul is addressing in the entire book of Galatians, but especially in this passage that we're going to read. Okay, let me, let me uh, keep going here in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? So if after we've decided that we, or, or it has become apparent that, that we cannot save ourselves through our own works, we want to be justified by our faith in Christ. If after that, which is a lot of us here, we we've probably would say that we're believers and we, we've been justified by faith and then you find sin in your life, maybe you find moralism in your life, does that mean... It's Christ's fault? Does that mean that the justification didn't take? Does that mean you did it wrong? Let's read verse 18 next. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If we tear down moralism in our lives at some point and we say, I'm following my own performance, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to be a part of Jesus. I want to tear down moralism. Why do we end up rebuilding it in our life? Why does that start to show up in our life again in the future? We've got, I got two reasons why this might be the case. The first one is because moralism is inside of us. We are sinful, broken people. We, are, we have sinful desires that want to prove our value and self-worth apart from God. We want to do it on our own. We want to earn it. And we're uncomfortable with, with God doing it for us. Okay? This is just, this is our sinful nature. That's the first reason. Moralism is inside of us. The second reason, second reason is moralism is outside of us. It's everywhere. I don't know if you've noticed, but we live in a performance-based world. Everything is based on our performance. 
I made a list, okay, of all, of all these, these areas. The first one, let, let's explore how, how this might be true. The first one is culture, okay? You look at culture. Is, is culture moralistic? Is culture performance-based? Of course it is. You don't fly the right flag, or God forbid you fly the wrong flag, flag, What does culture do? They will come down on you like a ton of bricks. They will beat you down. They will shame you, smear you. We see that all the time, especially on the internet, because it's really easy to attack people when you don't have to look at them face to face. I mean, we we see it all the time with the leaders or or influencers, uh, culture, and people are going back through people's uh, posts and pictures trying to find anything that might show that these people have done something wrong in their past. And then sure enough, there it is on the news for everybody to see. Last night on the news I saw, we're going back not just 10 or 20 years, and not just the people that are living, but we're going, we're going way back, like founding fathers type stuff. We're taking their statues down because these people were not perfect. Their performance was terrible. I, I saw Lewis and uh, I think a statue of Lewis in Sacagawea just went down. I saw Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee's statue just went down. Like, culture has taken moralism and, like, taken it to the next level. We are going after people. If, if they find anything that's been morally reprehensible, and some of these things were morally reprehensible, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dispute that, but, like, wh- where does it end? Like, are we, are, we not, are we not all sinful? Are we not all guilty? Is there no grace? Should we just condemn? I mean, like, where do we, should we all <laughs> be condemned? Should we, should we smear all of us? So culture is an obvious place where moralism exists. How about your work? Is that performance-based? Of course it is. I'm uh, a financial advisor, and so it's it's clearly performance-based for my business. If somebody's investments don't perform the way that they expect them to perform, I'm going to lose a client. But it's true of anybody's job. You don't show up. You don't show up to, to work. Are you going to get a paycheck? No. That's not all that bad. It motivates us to get to work and to get after it and to, and to do well and to try hard. But how about if we take it to a, a little bit further degree? If, you're, if your work or your business isn't meeting your expectations, if it's not performing to the level that you want it to perform, and, and maybe you're not succeeding like other people, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's failing, maybe it's... Maybe it's not doing well and you're struggling with that. Do you feel condemned? Do you feel ashamed? Do you feel like, ah, my value and my my worth is in my work and I I don't feel valuable anymore because I'm not doing well at work? Yeah, this is especially true of guys. And then what happens when business is doing well? You're like, hey, check me out. I'm making more money than I've ever made. Business is doing great. I'm climbing the corporate ladder. I'm amazing. I should write a book or something. This is, honestly, this is a, a great example of how moralism and, and, and the performance-based mindset is, is uh, it, it, we experience it in the world. So that's work. How about relationships? Are relationships performance-based? You treat someone like garbage, what's likely to happen? They're going to treat you like garbage. Is this true in marriage? It often is. Too often. 
You don't treat your spouse well, you're not going to be treated well. Unless maybe you're married to a Christian, then, then you might be fortunate because they might serve you like Christ served them because you don't deserve to be served well. I don't deserve to be served well because I mess up all the time. Marriages are performance-based. How about uh, health? You mess up, God forbid, you eat a carb. This is like, carbs are like the new meth, I feel like. You had, you had a chip? You had a slice of bread? Are you kidding me? Oh, I'm so ashamed, you know? Like, how many diets are there now, by the way, speaking of this? Like, are there th- a thousand diets? Should we name them all? You got a whole 30. We've got, uh, you know, intermittent fasting. We've got uh, plant-based. What happened to Atkins? Does anybody know what happened to Atkins? That used to be a thing like 20 years ago. Did he have a heart attack? Is that what happened? Too much meat and bacon? Now we got keto. That's right. Thank goodness. We're back, back on the bacon bandwagon, you know? Like, good. I'll, I have a, a bacon fat shake, and then I... <laughs> my strips of bacon. The diet is a great example of a performance-based world. I'm going to lose this. Okay, last one. Last example of this, and then we'll move on. We talked about culture and work, uh, relationships, health. How about religion? Is religion performance-based? Oh, man. It's like the definition of moralism. Think about Catholicism, and you got the sacraments and everything there. You, you think about Mormonism. I just read an article. It was like, how to become a Mormon in 72 easy steps. <laughs> I mean, if you're a Mormon, I'm, I don't mean to like mock Mormonism. I'm serious. I'm not trying to offend you, but I thought it was a pretty funny article. Somebody was ticked at the Mormon church. Mormons, how about, how about the Muslims or uh, the Buddhists, you know? You don't perform? Is Muhammad going to take care of you? I don't think so. You don't perform. Are you going to get the Zen that Buddha is offering? The gospel, the real gospel here, is the only thing in the world that is not based on our performance. It's based on Jesus' performance, not ours. It's the only thing. We are such misfits in this world. But what do we do? We're the only ones that have the truth. But what do we do? We read things like 2 Peter 1.5. I don't want to read the whole thing. It's going to take forever. But it says, supplement your faith with virtue and with knowledge and with self-control and with steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten he was cleansed from his former sins. So what do we do as Christians? We're like, oh my gosh, there's seven things here that if these aren't increasing in... in, uh, whatever, effectiveness or something, if these aren't increasing, then it means I forgot what I was saved from. So I got to work really hard and I got to work myself up into a frenzy because I got to prove that I haven't forgotten the gospel. And we work so hard to prove we haven't forgotten the gospel that what did we do? We forgot the gospel. Dang it. It's, 
It's maddening. Tell me that that's not true. Tell me that you haven't experienced that either in your own life or in other people's lives. It's probably in your life. I mean, like, let's just call it out. Is it any wonder that we fall into the trap of moralism, that we are plagued by moralism? But what do we do? Okay? What do we do? Paul, Paul's got the answer for us. Okay, this is where it starts to get good. Verse 19. For through the law... I died to the law so I might live to God. Through the law, I died to the law so I might live to God. What the heck does that mean? Martin Luther from the 1500s has some incredible stuff on this. And I'm going to try to do this justice. I'm not going to, but I'm going to try. He says, Paul, this is a masterful stroke here. Paul manhandles the law. And in our case, he manhandles moralism. How does, he, how does he do that? What does culture say? Live to the law or you're dead to everybody. Follow the rules or you, you don't have value. What do the false apostles say in Galatia? They say, live to the law or you're dead to God. Paul says the opposite. No, you've got to die to the law so that you can live to God. False apostles say you've got to live to the law or else you're dead to God. They are implying, these false apostles in Galatia, they are implying that Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died a horrific death. He was, he was buried. He was resurrected. And then before he ascended to heaven, it, it, it's like they're implying that Jesus was like, okay, now, uh, believe in me, of course. And um, now get out there and, and uh, take on the world. And I'm going to give you a little bit of time, but you better get your act together and you better be perfect. It's like Jesus is putting us in this impossible situation where we have to go and do battle with, with moralism. And we have no hope of doing battle with moralism and, and winning that battle. Is that what Jesus is doing? Does he put us in an impossible situation? It makes me think of um, a story. It makes me think of this book, actually, The Killer Angels. I don't know if ever, anybody's ever read it, but it's this incredible book about the Battle of Gettysburg. Josh, our bass player, was wearing a Gettysburg shirt, and I was like, yes, I'm going to tell a story about Gettysburg today. It, this, this idea that Jesus would put us in this suicide mission, a battle that we could never win, reminds me of Gettysburg. So this story, I, I knew of Gettysburg before I read this book, but not like the details of this. Gettysburg was like the bloodiest battle ever for Americans. Okay? Uh, the same amount of people died in a three-day battle of Gettysburg than the entire Vietnam War. It was brutal. So it's a three-day battle. The first day, the South wins some skirmishes. The second day, I think the North won some skirmishes. And it comes to the third day of this battle. And the North have the high ground. Okay, They've got the They've got the, the wall that they've built with rocks. It's like three or four feet high, and they're sitting behind it, and they're ready to snipe any southerner that comes up. And the south are down on the other side of this field, and the field is wide open. It's full of boulders. It's really hard to get through. The south is in a terrible situation, and the north is in a great situation. But General Lee, Robert E. Lee, the one we just took a statue down, General Lee is, is, is ready to be done with the war. And he's like, this is it. We, my boys love me. We're going we're gonna to end this war. We're going to end it right now. 
So he asked his advisor, General Longstreet, like, what do you think we should do? I'm thinking about going right up the middle, like right to the center of their line and breaking the north in two. And his advisor, General Longstreet's like, don't do it. This is not a good idea. This is a suicide mission. We, we don't have the high ground. We don't have any chance of winning this, with this battle. We should flank them and go around the outside. So what does Lee do? He disregards the advice of his advisors and says, no, I'm doing it. He, he stands back where it's nice and safe, and he sends, he, he orders the largest charge of the Civil War. He sends tens of thousands of men before him. So he stands back where it's safe, and he sends these guys up this hill. He stands back where it's safe, and he sends them to be massacred, and oh my gosh, did they ever. These are Americans like torn apart, ripped apart by, by bullets and, and, and what, the, what the north was firing at them. Is this what Jesus does to us? Is this what Jesus does? Stands back in a place of safety and says, good luck out there, boys and girls. Go fight this impossible battle. Deuteronomy 31.8 says, the Lord goes before us. Jesus doesn't stand back and send us into a suicide mission. He says, you guys stand back. You guys stand back and I will go. I will climb this hill. I will get torn apart. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. I will hang on that cross while you guys watch. Even though he was sinless, he took our sin for our behalf. Uh, 2 Corinthians 521 says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is how we're justified by faith. He does this incredible heroic act. He's the only one that's righteous. He, he defeats the law. He abolishes the law like he fulfills the law perfe- perfectly. And then he's crucified as if he's a criminal. But he offers us, like, this proves his righteousness, and then he offers us this righteousness, this justification. All we have to do is believe. It's, it's too good to be true, it feels like, doesn't it? All we have to do is believe on the cross, and God sees us as if we have the same righteousness of Christ. Paul knows this. Back to Paul. And he says, through the law, I died to the law, so that you might live to God. Paul, this is, how, this is why it's so masterful. Paul removes himself from the equation. He says, through the law, the new law of Jesus. That's the first law he's talking about. This is the law of grace and mercy and justification by faith. Through the law, I died to the old law. It was the Jewish law back in, in Galatian days. It's the law of moralism now. And he lets Jesus do battle with that law. And Jesus destroys it. And Paul says, I am, now, I am now with Jesus. I want to be with this new law. I'm dead to that old law. That, that law doesn't have power over me anymore. It, it doesn't have power to accuse me. It doesn't have power to condemn me. It doesn't have power to drive me crazy. And it certainly doesn't have power to save me. He says, I died to the law so I might live to God. What does living to God mean? How do we do that? How do we live to God? We are united with Christ. 
That is how we live to God. Another way to say that is we abide in God. 1 John 4.15 says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Whether you're a Christian or whether you're just checking it out. Whether you, whether you have faith in Jesus or whether you maybe just you want faith in Jesus, you, you want this. This is what we confess. It's verse 20. It's the next verse. It's like, it's killer. This is the climax of this section. I got to get to it. Sorry. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what we confess. Let me bust this up. I have been crucified with Christ is the first part. I am, I am with Christ. I, I was with Christ in his death. I want my sinful desires, my sinful actions. I want my, my desire to prove my value and my self, self-worth to be crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but, but Christ that lives in me. It's not about me anymore. I am not the hero. I am not the, I, I, it's not my righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness. Luther has a, a good quote on this I want to read too. Since Christ is now living in me, he abolishes the law. He condemns sin and destroys death in me. This union with Christ delivers me from the demands of the law and separates me from my sinful self. As long as I abide in Christ, nothing can hurt me. Nothing can hurt you. Last part of that verse. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me, who gave himself for me. Did the law love you? Does moralism, did moralism sacrifice itself for you? Does moralism, did moralism die on the cross for you? No, of course not. It accuses you. It condemns you. It drives you crazy. Drives me crazy. There's only one that did that for us. It's Jesus. It's the Son of God. He's the only one that loves us and offers this to us. If that doesn't entice you, if that doesn't like make you want to reject moralism and abide in Christ... Maybe this last verse will do it. I, verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you reject Christ and you, and you abide in moralism, like how ridiculous is that? You nullify the grace of God and is this... As if Christ died for no purpose. Don't do that. Stop it. Do not abide in moralism. Reject moralism and abide in Christ. When you do that, when you die to the law, when you die to moralism, man, it doesn't have power over us anymore. I can look at my past, the, the, the actions that I made, the, the, uh, the dirty little secrets uh, in our lives and, and the things that used to make me cringe. I think about those things now. I mentioned this earlier. And I, I smile because those things, not only do they not condemn me anymore, they brought me to Jesus. 
That doesn't have power over me anymore. I'm with Jesus. I'm with the law, like the real law, the, the good law, the new law. That, that changes everything. Culture doesn't have power over you anymore. Your work doesn't have power to condemn you or to save you. Your value is not in your work. Rejecting moralism can, can help your marriage. Rejecting moralism will help you not eat carbs. No, it won't. That's too far, sir. I don't think that helps. Listen, let's reject moralism and abide in Christ right now. Let's, let's go to communion. Let's confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, and let's, let's do that together. We'll have the, the band come forward. We do communion every week here, just so you know, in case you're new. We, we, uh, we believe this is important. Jesus, Jesus did this before he, uh, before he ascended to heaven, and, and, and he tells us to do it. So every week, we'll just have, uh, have you get up where you're at and come grab a cup and a cracker. There's actually two cups. Take both of those. I'll give you a minute to get those and head back to your seat, and then I'll walk you through it. Head back to your seat with the uh, with the juice and the cracker here. Let's just take a minute and bow bow your head and let's just think through uh, where where you might be struggling with this, where you might be re- struggling to reject moralism, where you've been plagued by moralism. Which ditch are you in? Feeling condemned? Because you don't measure up, your moral performance hasn't been great, or, or do you feel like your performance has been great, and you are pretty awesome? Think through that. Recognize that both those who are missing the mark it has nothing to do with us, like nothing. Like you should get to the point where, where you say like nothing, like I can do anything. Like I, I can, I can, I can act any way I want, and Jesus will still love me. That's that's how far we should take it. That's what I think it was Romans six. Like, should we just keep sinning so that grace would abound? Like, that's how far you should take it. That's how, that's what you should be thinking. And then the answer to that question is no. By no means should you keep sinning. If you believe in Jesus, if you're justified by faith, the sin will take care of itself. Your your actions will. Out of gratitude, out of, out of gratefulness for what Jesus did on the cross, your life will change. Let's think through uh, which ditch we're in, whether we're condemned, whether, we're, whether we don't feel like we've con- been condemned or there's nothing to condemn. And let's think about what Jesus did for us. He climbed that hill. It wasn't Cemetery Hill in Gettysburg. It was Calvary's Hill. 
His body was broken for us. His body was broken so that we could be healed. Let's take his body and do this in remembrance of him. Let me take the blood. Not only have our sins been forgiven, Jesus said, I shed my blood for you. Not only are your sins forgiven, but you received my righteousness. Not only is the slate wiped clean, but now we have seen with the same righteousness of Christ, Jesus' blood paid for that. Let's take his blood and do it in remembrance of him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for your son. It means so much to us. I pray that somebody would see uh, the gospel here in a new light. I pray that people would, would confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that they have been crucified with you, that it's no longer them that live, but Christ that lives in them. Pray that people would come to a new understanding of this. Lives would change through this incredible church and that we'd get to be a part of it. Pray this in your name. Amen.